love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Let me ask you this. When you first wake up in the morning and then you close your eyes and start to maybe drift back to sleep again, do you see things very vividly in your mind's eye? Like you're dreaming but not really dreaming? It's almost like you're there? Oh, no. Oh, okay. Because that happens to me and the other morning... It was five o'clock in the morning. And of course, we live next door to the screaming uh, demon toddler. Right. And um, the, the, the toddler started screaming. And, and again, not just a toddler scream, but it's borderline demonic. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It, it really is. And at the same time, somebody started frying bacon. I could start to smell bacon. Right. So I try to go back to sleep and I close my eyes and I have this vision of a toddler in a chef's hat standing on an overturned spaghetti pot screaming into a pan of frying bacon. So I, I'm, I'm going to get that as a tattoo. I love that. I love that the two things became one. Yeah. The visual is hilarious. And he's wearing a white apron too. Of course. Kind of like, you know, Bobby Flay style. Anyway, it's weird living in this apartment, mm. but I love it. I'm so glad. I really love it. We, we got our electric bill for August. Right. $13, everybody. We paid bad. $13 for electric. Of course, some of that is being offset by our purchasing of WD-40 for the local swing set, which you, makes a yeah. weird squeaky squeaky sound right. and it drives me Cuckoo bananas. Yeah, and and WD forty is uh, eight hundred forty dollars here. So, right. you, you know, it ebbs and it flows. <laughs> it's life. I just want you to keep in mind as you are getting into your story that mm. as you move, your head rubs against the foam that we have oh. flopped down over us in a very precarious scenario. Um, and I just don't want you to be making a bunch of like. Whew, 
noises. noises. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. We're still in the process of building our studio. It's getting there, though. <laughs> it, it is. It, it's getting there. Uh, today's configuration is just a foam draped over our bed and um, not a lot of headroom. We love the idea of visiting international festivals. Absolutely. There have been some really interesting topics that we've covered over the years, uh, like that vegetarian festival in Thailand, in Thailand, where they put gas pump nozzles through their cheeks. Yep. The yeah. Japanese Penis Festival. There, There's another good one, too. The I've, Baby Tossing Festival. The Baby Tossing Festival. Um, I'm looking to bring it here to... <laughs> Our building. Stop. And I've got one contestant in mind. No. He wears a chef's hat <laughs> in my dreams. <laughs> anyway, picture this. It's ancient Mesoamerica, right? The air is thick with the sound of dancing and chanting. A festival is going on. It's a wild festival, and it lasts an entire month. Wow, that sounds great. And I'm going to try to pronounce it, so bear with me. Tlakashipe Walitsli. This sounds Aztec? Yes, well, it is. It's Aztec, but it's spread beyond the Aztec nation. The name of the uh, festival is a mouthful, but basically what it means is the flaying of men. I'm I'm really hopeful that that is a metaphor. Sounds pretty metal, um, but no, it's uh, a festival to celebrate a god called Shipe Totec, and his name actually means the flayed one. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So he's their lord and flayer. So we've heard of different gods from various cultures, but Mesoamerica, man, they they take it to a whole other level. Um, of course, of course, Shipe Totec is a uh, a huge standout, and you might be thinking he's this lovely god of spring, overseeing planting and helping craftsmen. But there's a twist: the god, instead of being all decked out in nature's best, He's draped in human skin. Oh. Yeah. It's a fashion statement from the underworld, from their spring and summer collection. Now, the brainy folks over at World History Encyclopedia have a few theories about where he came from. Some think that it started with the Olmecs, and uh, and then it kind of graduated or migrated to different cultures. But one thing's clear. By the 9th century, he was everywhere in Mesoamerican culture. And I mean everywhere, from Aztecs to Mayans. Uh, everybody was drawing him. They were sculpting him, uh, basically fangirling this god. The mythology goes really deep. He's apparently the offspring of this uh, ancient god that split into two uh, to, you know, make the world. And his family, all gods, okay, like Quetzalcoatl, who was the original phoenix rising from the ashes. Right. But it was during April in ancient Mesoamerica that things shifted from routine to utterly bonkers. Okay, picture this. The city's bubbling with anticipation. There's a festival coming up. Every alleyway and corner is echoing with the distant rhythm of ceremonial drums. The scorching sun is overhead. The weather isn't just hot. It's really dense with humidity. Jester Daly, one of my little nerdy escapades, uh, does a deep dive on what happened. So get comfy because this is not your average. uh, Let me put it this way. At this festival, you're not going to find fried dough. Probably no dunk tanks either, although that would have been less bloody. Unless the dunk tanks were filled with blood. That's true. Yeah. 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 I once made a dunk tank clown cry 
at a carnival. What? Why? Well, he was being a dick to my kids, trying to get him to, oh. you know, throw balls at him. Okay. And, uh, and then he started yelling at me and uh, said, oh, isn't a good father. And so I told him that he was probably right in that one day, if, if I'm lucky, I can work my way up to dunk tank clown. And he just got off his bench and left. I think you can take it too far sometimes. Yeah, I think you did. No, he did. Mm, disagree. What a, what a terrible example that was for your children. Maybe Dunk Tank Clown was right. <laughs> so picture this. On the horizon, you start to see a line of captives. These aren't just captives. They're war prisoners. Possibly some of the bravest warriors from their tribes. Their hearts must have been pounding, not just from the fear of the known, but also the unknown. They've prepared for this day with elaborate dances that border on trance-like, their feet stomping up dust that sticks to their sweaty bodies. They've been given hair, uh, these jagged, edgy ritual haircuts, and now they're being led to the town square. Now, day two, let me paint the scene. The air is electric with tension. Spectators gather around. Um, they're, they're all kind of conversing among them, amongst themselves, murmurs. Every eye is fixated on these brave souls. A battle is about to commence okay. with these prisoners. And even though the battles are rigged, these prisoners fight with, with fire and with spirit. Every clang of their weapon, every, the crowd just explodes with enthusiasm. But do they know that they're rigged? Yes, they do. Is it like a reenactment? Yes, it's some sort of a reenactment, but there are those who refuse to fight because they know it's not going to make any difference. So they just walk toward the, their destiny uh, with an unnerving calm, Okay. their heads held high. They're, they act like kings of the world, not so much as victims. And now here's where it gets really kooky, okay? Win or lose in this battle, it doesn't matter. Their fate is sealed. And here's a trigger warning. It gets, it gets pretty graphic here. With a quick, sharp motion, their beating hearts are yanked from their chest. Wait, so everyone who partakes yeah. in this event? Mm -hmm. Everybody. Even, like, there's two teams, yeah. and doesn't matter who... No, no it's just no. all their hearts are ripped out. Yeah, and, and held up still pulsating, as if offering the very essence of life to, uh, to the gods or, or the heavens. But then it doesn't stop there. That's where the flaying begins. Now, the ritual of flaying, especially in the context of the ancient Mesoamerican practices, uh, dedicated specifically to Shopei Totec, highly symbolic act that merged brutality with religious fervor. And here's a more graphic description based on historical interpretations. Please note, this content may not be suitable for sensitive people. Once the sacrificial individual had their heart removed in the offering to their gods, the act of skinning would begin. With precision, priests would place an incision down the front of the body from the neck to the thighs. The cut was often made with an obsidian blade or some other sharp stone tool, which was both symbolic and practical. It was razor sharp. Um, the priests, very skilled in this, they would begin the process of separating the skin from the underlying flesh, and uh, they would pull and peel away the skin using the tools to aid the process whenever they encountered resistance or needed to make additional cuts. I have a question. Yeah. And maybe you're going to get to this. The sacrifice was being made 
to to what end with what hope i mean was it for a fruitful harvest yes was yeah. it okay yeah he he was the god of well many things but in particular spring and um it represented so like good crops yeah it represented well I'll, I'll get to it okay okay I just can't stop thinking about Bobby Flay now. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm picturing like the show Beat Bobby Flay, which I've seen many, many times. And, you know, the the premise is that you have to beat Bobby Flay at, at making your signature meal. And I'm just thinking, what if someone came to the show, said, my signature dish is a, a flayed Kevin. Kevin was a, was a very popular name back in the in, in ancient Mesoamerican days. Mm. Or what? Take it the other way. What if Bobby Flay time traveled back and had to compete against the priests in flaying these Ooh, people? Interesting. I wonder who'd win. I mean, he's got the name for it. Does he have to use their tools, or does he bring his tools with him? Ooh, good question. Thank you. Anyway, they get to the face. And uh, this is the last part to be removed. Can you flay a face? Yeah, yeah. Oh. They they turn it inside out with special care taken to maintain the form of the nose and the lips. The entire gruesome process was performed in front of an audience. Well, pretty much their entire city would be there for mm -hmm. this. This was this was an act of public devotion. Mm. Once fully removed, the skin would be treated, and then it would be worn by young men during the festivities. The act of wearing the flayed skin was symbolic of rebirth. This is the answer to your question. Okay, so of the kind old of like being the shed, yeah, 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 the seed growing, making way for new—a powerful but horrifying representation of the cycle of life and death. And then the aftermath. Now, this festival would last a month. Young men, perhaps with a mix of dread and horror, step forward. They don the skins of the sacrificed. Some would still be warm. Some would still be dripping. Now, do you continue to wear the same skins throughout the month? Mm -hmm. Oh, so you're getting... Like yeah. if you're one of the last ones to don a skin, you might be wearing like a month old yeah. decomposing skin. And they just parade around. It's a haunting sight in what seems like a mix of reverence, defiance, and celebration. The city is alive. It pulsates to the beat of the march. But as the days pass, mm. those skins, they decay. They start turning rancid. They start turning black. They start curling at the edges. By the festival's climax... They're a grotesque testament to the passage of time. Eventually, they're reverently removed like old cloaks, and they're buried beneath the city's towering temple. That's their final resting place. Okay. But get this, before all of this chaos, there's a prelude. For weeks, specially selected members of the community don the personas of the gods, the various gods, including... Shopei Totek. They dress with vibrant feathers and glinting gold jewelry, becoming mortal embodiments of the divine entities. They're, re they're revered, they're treated like celebrities during this period, but when the festivities kick off, their fate mirrors that of the prisoners. They too are flayed, uh, their roles completed, their divine essence stripped away. And I assume that that is a great honor? It is a great honor. Can you imagine being part of that, witnessing that, the horror, the sheer intensity of it all? I don't want to hear anybody complaining about the problems they had at Burning Man. Okay. Now, I know it all sounds kind of grim to us, but for them, wearing someone's skin was, was a profound gesture. Right. It was like feeling the earth come alive again every spring or some, some stuff like that. I don't know. Anyway, uh, those who were flayed 
as wild as it sounds, back in the day, it was a massive honor. Mm. Like you weren't just dying, you were giving it up for something even bigger. Right. And as we reminisce about Chopin Totec, and of course as hardcore fans at the time, remember it, it was a different time. It might give us the creeps right now, but for them it was just a way to show their faith and understanding of life, death, and everything in between. Right. I wouldn't want to be part of that festival, um, even if I wasn't one of the people that was scheduled to be flayed, because mm. I would just assume I was being tricked into being flayed. That's fair. Plus, you're a little squeamy around blood. Oh, my goodness. I clipped my toenail a little bit too close, and uh, I thought I was going to pass out because the little pink end started to show, and it hurt real bad, mm -hmm. and um, blood started to drain from my head, so I had to I had to squat down on the balcony where I clipped my nails. Yeah, which I appreciate, by the way. Yeah. That was something that took years in our relationship for you to, to eventually move out to the balcony to clip my nails. nails. Yeah. yeah. Before that, I would, I would lay down newspapers on the bed. But those little things, man, they're like projectiles. You never get them all. My source information, uh, all things interesting, some cool insights on Shipe Totek, Jester Daily. For all the gritty details about the flaying of men. Oof. And World History Cyclopedia, a deep dive on who and where Shipe Totec came from. So we have Burning Man Festival. They had Flaying Man Festival. Neither were easy to get out of. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's a-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. 
When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. During his research, Dr. Barry J. Marshall was convinced that Helicobacter pylori bacteria causes, among other things, stomach ulcers. But nobody believed him. And since it was illegal to test his theory on humans, he drank the bacteria himself. He quickly developed ulcers within days, treated them with antibiotics, and went on to win the Nobel Prize. Now that's a weekend. David sent us a photo of his mileage, thinking that we would enjoy it. And yeah, I sure do. What is it, a palindrome? It's oh. 111,111. David, did like a portal open to another dimension oh when gosh. that happened? Because that's mystical. It's so satisfying. Scott writes, hey, Kat. Hey, Jethro. Thanks a lot. You almost got me written up at work. <laughs> I found your podcast a month or so ago, and I've been binging at work from the beginning. Just wanted to share that I got in trouble at work over you. Let me explain. I'm an upholsterer in Hickory, North Carolina, and while we work, we are allowed to listen to music or podcasts as long as we only wear one earbud. I guess that makes sense. Safety issue. Right. For a while now, I've been binging you and am up to November 2019. We are told that we can listen to stuff but aren't allowed, obviously, to be on our phone a lot or to call or talk to people while we work. A lot of times, I just put your podcast on and listen to your episodes continuously. This past week, my boss came up to me and said that he had been watching and noticed that I was talking to someone while working, and he wanted to warn me he might have to write me up for misuse of my phone. I was confused until he told me he saw me several times talking to someone using my earbud and figured I was uh, calling people or receiving calls. I swore I wasn't and finally realized he must have noticed me talking back to you two, (laughs) commenting and laughing. I grabbed my phone and showed him I hadn't made any calls or used my phone during work and showed him my podcast app and explained to him I was just listening to the best podcast out there. I finally convinced him, then explained to him what your podcast was about, and so now he's a listener. (laughs) Crisis averted. (laughs) I love your podcast, and I tell my husband all the time that I just know that we all would be best friends. You two made a few comments this week that convinced me first. You two honeymooned in D.C. and went to museums. We got married in D.C. and spent our honeymoon there also. Also, you two collect refrigerator magnets and Christmas ornaments whenever you go on a trip, and we do the exact same thing. Mm -mm. It's fate. Keep up the good work. And I'm sad that I missed the Charlotte show that you did back in 2019. You're going to be sad again when you realize that we did another show in, I think, 2021. But, um, yeah, it was a comedy zone, right? Yeah. I hope you come back one day, now that I know who you are. 
I'm definitely getting VIP tickets uh, when you do. Love you guys, Scott. Now, uh, Scott, yes, we last time we did a show in Charlotte, our flight got canceled. We ended up spending a couple of extra days there. We and, almost moved there. We almost moved there, um, and mostly because of Tupelo Honey, the restaurant Tupelo Honey. We <sighs> ate there, I think, 47 times. Something like that. Katie sent us a message, just listened to the episode where Kat got a retweet from Maria Bamford, and I just wanted to know, I sent Maria a long, sappy message about how much her comedy and work has helped me with my mental health. She responded to me, and I cried. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're not alone, Kat. Mm -hmm. LOL. Maria Bamford seems like the type of person that would go out of her way to do that sort of thing. She's not only funny as hell, but seems like a genuinely caring individual. Right. She's got a new book out called Sure, I'll Join Your Cult, and (laughs) I'm super excited to read it. Check out her Netflix show, too, Lady Dynamite, if you've not had a chance to watch it. Oh, my gosh. And her special, special, special. Everything she does is magic. Everything she does is magic. Love you, Maria Bamford. I hope you liked your socks that I sent you. That's right. You sent her socks with pugs on them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we have a weird life, don't we? (laughs) Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Anyway, tell me a story. Well, in a couple of days from the time of this recording, it will be the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the Battle of the Sexes. Oh, are you talking about uh, Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King? That is correct. Yes. The event took place September 20th, 1973 at the Houston Astrodome in Texas. Billie Jean King, a prominent tennis player, faced off against Bobby Riggs, a former men's champion, in a highly publicized exhibition match. 
he spent the entire time taunting her and, and he, his day had passed, you know, yeah. he, he was an older dude and he was showing how he was, he could beat her like while he was carrying a pail of water and, you know, he was just being really kind of a dick. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of his vibe. Yeah. This match was called the Battle of the Sexes, and it was fueled by Riggs boasting about male superiority in sports. To build excitement for the match, and also because I'm pretty sure this is just who he was, Bobby Riggs fully embraced his role as a male chauvinist. He spouted off outrageous statements like, she's a woman and they don't have the emotional stability to win. Mm -hmm. And women belong in the bedroom and kitchen in that order. He took to the extreme position, posing for photos as Henry VIII and even playing a match in drag. He treated the whole event like a tasteless comedy act. Almost like professional wrestling. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of Andy Kaufman. Yeah. 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 He really treated it like it was uh, like a carnival act. Absolutely. But for females at this time, it was a real fight mm. for equality. Mm-hmm. During this time, Riggs even had a conversation with journalist-turned-filmmaker Nora Ephron, where he expressed his wish that women could stay home, do domestic work, take care of babies, and stick to areas where they can compete. Mm -hmm. He believed that women getting involved in mixed-sex matches like this was a huge mistake, and he wanted to put women right back where they belong, quote-unquote. Riggs' antics were meant to provoke and entertain, but they also showcased the prevalent sexism and gender stereotyping at the time. His outrageous behavior served as a stark contrast to Billie Jean King's determination and class and efforts to challenge those beliefs and prove that women could compete at the highest level. Now, Billie Jean King was born in 1943 in California, and she discovered her passion for tennis at an early age. She actually played softball and really loved it, but her dad wanted her to play something a little more ladylike, so he signed her up for tennis. Mm. And she said after her first lesson, quote, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. She began playing competitively as a teenager, and competitive she was, once saying, victory is fleeting, losing is forever. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Mm, that's taking it real serious. She didn't cut herself a lot of slack. In her early days, King's talent became evident when she won her first major championship, the Wimbledon doubles title, at the age of 17. That's yeah, amazing. Over the following years, she continued to excel in both singles and doubles events, amassing an impressive collection of titles and establishing herself as one of the top players of her time. Now back to 73. Fueling the bizarre carnival-like lead-up to this Battle of the Sexes event was, gestures vaguely, everything about Bobby Riggs. Mm, mm. He was a runt of a kid who was always an underdog, and he played tennis very competitively until the 1950s. He returned to play on the seniors tour in the 1960s. When he did this, he was super bummed that he couldn't capture the same attention that he'd once garnered. Mm. He wanted to make this full comeback as a senior player, and that just wasn't the, the vibe. It made him furious that older players, that senior male tennis players, earned less than female tennis players. Okay. He felt that even old, he should be able to make more than ladies. Mm. Plus, it ticked him off that the ladies always got to play on the main courts at Wimbledon and Forest Hills, where seniors were on the 
farther back courts. He felt like he should be at the forefront at all times, I regardless see. of right. his age or skill level. As long as he had a penis. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it all started like this. According to The Last Sure Thing, The Life and Times of Bobby Riggs, George McGann asked Riggs, what's the lowest ranked men's player that you think could beat Billie Jean King? And Riggs responded, oh, anybody ranked about 100 could beat a women's champion. Hmm. Hell, I could beat Billie Jean. Now, this is on the heels of... King being the first tennis player named Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year and the first female to ever receive the honor. Yeah, she was riding high. Yeah, it was 1972, and she's incredible. So Bobby Riggs put out this challenge, and Billie Jean King declined. She was like, no, I'm I'm not going to do that. It's embarrassing. Uh, Also, she did know what was at stake. Right. So she wasn't going to risk it. But Margaret Court stepped up and accepted the offer. Margaret Court agreed to play the match for a guaranteed prize of $20,000, which was actually more than what she had earned for winning both the 1973 Australian and French Opens. Mm. Court was 30 at the time, and she had taken a break from tennis after giving birth to her first child in 72. But she was still at the top of her game. She held the number one ranking as the world's best female player for the seventh consecutive year. Wow. Yeah. Riggs, knowing this, trained hard for this match and promoted it everywhere he could. The match took place on Mother's Day in front of 3,500 live spectators and around 10 million TV viewers. And that was a big thing uh, during that time in the in the early seventies. Um, publicity spectacles. Yeah, it was a lot of stuff like that. Evil Knievel jumping the Snake Canyon River, you know, in a rocket ship, and just crazy yeah. stuff. This event was a big deal, and some really problematic celebrities were present to witness the show, like O.J. Simpson, Bill Cosby, and John Wayne. <laughs> they actually were there to hand over the winner's check, which did go to Riggs. He quickly took the first three games, losing only four points, and Court's confidence and concentration didn't recover. Riggs prevailed 6-2, 6-1. Now, Billie Jean King herself had stated that if Margaret Court was defeated, she would have to step up and face Riggs herself. And just a little over four months later, the stage was set for a second Battle of the Sexes to unfold. As I said, it was September 20th, 1973, in the Houston Astrodome, and the match captivated the world. At the time, it was the largest tennis event ever organized. It was a primetime broadcast. It attracted a staggering 90 million viewers worldwide. You know, the other day when we were walking through El Centro uh, here in Cuenca, and the National Ecuadorian football or soccer team was playing in the World Cup qualifying quarterfinals Mm -hmm. and you could hear the game echoing from doorway to doorway and street to street and car to car. I mean, it was a big deal. That's what it was like with this tennis match. Everywhere you went, it was on. People listening to it on the radio, people watching it on TV. Do you do you remember it happening? Yeah, I do. Where were you? Did you watch it? I was delivering papers. I was a paper boy <laughs> and I was delivering papers to, um, I think it was Haskell Hall dormitory at Ricker college. And, uh, <laughs> they had it on in the game room there and people were watching it in all their rooms. They had TVs. You could just, the audio was everywhere. Yeah. 
Now, Billie Jean King knew how much was on the line here, and she prepared for this event. Riggs, cocky from his win against court, not so much. He mostly went on interviews and promoted the event, mm. not really preparing for the event, the event physically. Didn't train as hard as he did for the first match. No. And Billie Jean King displayed exceptional skill, agility, and mental toughness. She defeated Riggs in straight sets with scores of 6-4, 6-3, and 6-3. I mean, they called the Riggs court match the Mother's Day Massacre, but really, this was pretty embarrassing for Riggs. <laughs> The match became a pivotal moment in the fight for gender equality, highlighting the capabilities of female athletes and inspiring generations of women to pursue their dreams in sports. It also was crucial because it went beyond the tennis court. It symbolized a larger movement for gender equality and women's rights. By defeating Riggs in straight sets, King demonstrated that women athletes were capable of achieving remarkable feats and deserved recognition and equal opportunities. Furthermore, her triumph helped advance the cause of equal prize money in tennis. At the time, male players received significantly higher prize purses than their female counterparts, despite comparable skill and effort. King co-founded the Women's Tennis Association and fought for equal prize money for males and females, and her victory helped highlight this disparity and enabled important discussions that led to more equitable prize distribution. In 1973, the U.S. Open became the first major tournament to offer equal prize money for men and women. How about that? Yeah. Hmm. When it comes to major championships, few players in history can rival Billie Jean King's remarkable record. Excluding Margaret Court and Martina Navratilova, King stands as one of the most successful players with 39 major titles. That's crazy. Her achievements include 12 singles titles, 16 women's doubles titles, and 11 mixed doubles titles. In 1990, Life magazine honored her as one of the 100 most important Americans of the 20th century. Not just important athletes, important Americans. The only other sports figures recognized besides her were Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, and Muhammad Ali. That's pretty good company. Mm. From 1959 to 83, she participated in 51 majors, reaching the semifinals 27 times and the quarterfinals a remarkable 40 times. In 1975, Seventeen magazine polled its readers and found that, according to them, King was the most admired woman in the world. And someone who admired her quite a bit was Elton John. Yeah, it they, was, they became pretty good friends. They were good friends. And Elton John and his writing partner... Bernie Toppin. That's right. They wrote a song in honor of Billie Jean King. You might have heard of it. Philadelphia Freedom. Philadelphia Freedom. Yeah, because wasn't that the name of the uh, professional tennis team that Billie Jean was playing for at the time? The Philadelphia Freedom, something like that? Yeah. Fun fact, that song never appeared on any regular Elton John album, only his greatest hits. Oh. It was never an album cut. Did you play that on the radio as a current? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. What, were you still delivering papers or had you? No, I quit my paper route to get into radio and took a huge pay cut. That sounds right. No, it's true. I know. Yeah. I, yeah, I, made I get more, it. More money delivering newspapers. Oh, gosh. Yeah. No, I took such a huge pay cut when I left bartending to go <laughs> work in radio. Yeah. Ugh. When, when you start out in radio, you, you don't make much money. 
Well, I never made more money than that, so. Well, I got fabulously rich at one point. I know, I know. That was fleeting. Just like victory. The end. Recognizing her immense contributions, Billie Jean King became the first female athlete to be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2009. President Barack Obama bestowed this prestigious honor upon her, further solidifying her legacy as a true trailblazer and inspiration. But beyond her playing career, Billie Jean King has been an advocate for gender equality, LGBTQIA rights, and her contributions had a lasting impact, especially on young women looking to get into sports. Overall, Billie Jean King's win at the Battle of the Sexes was a pivotal moment in sports and in the women's rights movement. It paved the way for greater gender equality in athletics. Her courage and determination continue to inspire generations of athletes and advocates for equal rights. Big thanks, by the way, to Davey, who sent me a link to a TikTok about Billie Jean King. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, this is perfect. Because I knew the anniversary was coming up. (laughs) So that worked out really well. Thanks, Davey. I pointed out to Kat recently that she starts a lot of her conversations with me uh, with the with the phrase. So I saw this TikTok, and so I was kind of teasing her about that. Yeah, you're being really cruel. No, it was with love. Um, and now she's she's come back with this, and I think it's brilliant. She has substituted. I saw this TikTok with. I was reading an academic article. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. Oh, thank you. Well done. But I don't change any of the other details about the story. No, so. no, just I read, the, read this academic article. I believe it was the Journal of Science. Where this girl was talking about how her boyfriend wouldn't help with the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> I got my information from ESPN, Time Magazine, Medium Magazine, TennisMajors.com, the International Tennis Hall of Fame, and our new friends Jennifer and Adam who are big tennis people. Big tennis people. And I asked if they wanted to uh, help and provide an audio clip for this show, and they looked at me like, why? (laughs) Quickly coming up on Halloween, if you want to share a Halloween story for our Halloween special. I'm so excited. Every Uh, year, your stories get better, and I'm just super excited. Not that first-year stories weren't great. Oh, they were great. That was just such a dumb thing to say. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Your stories are always good. If you have had an unexplained encounter or maybe you lived in a haunted house, we had lunch with a lady the other day who said she saw the ghost of a dead person in her tub when she was growing up. We want to hear stories like that. Yeah. Record them on your smartphone and email them to us at curator at theboxofoddities.com. We look forward to to listening to them and uh, to the Halloween special. And we edit them. It's not like you have to have like this perfectly crafted thing. You know, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. If did something weird happen to you, I want to hear about it. Did that sound too aggressive? I'm sorry. Curator at theboxofoddities.com. See you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so... Let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.
everyone's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.